While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. sat in a bar and cheered for 12-year-olds playing baseball on national television today. What? Why? Because it's Little League World Series. Is that a thing? I know that there's somebody who's really good. All right. And you're going to know her name, right? All right. I'm going to tell you about it. Welcome to Overdue. This is the podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I am a huge fan of the Taney Dragons. We believe in dragons. What what is that? Tell me what the Taney Dragons they are. They are the championship little league team from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I think either the first, definitely the they're probably the first team out of Philadelphia to make it to the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It sounds like you have exhaustively researched this. Topic. No, I know that <laughs> their star player Monet Davis is. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, the she was the first girl to win a Little League World Series game as a pitcher uh, and only the fourth to collect an RBI, mm-hmm. which she did this evening. Um, there have maybe been 18, I think, girls to play in the 75-year history of the Little League World Series. So it's a pretty big deal. She's pretty good. So are, there, are there rules that women can't play MLB baseball, or is it like a WNBA type situation? I don't know where women who play baseball play. They, I think there's underground, vast well, <laughs> underground baseball network. Well, because there, as you, if you know the film League of Their Own, you know that there used to be a professional baseball association for women that was widely trumpeted. Um, I don't know what professional options exist for women in baseball, but... But I thought that was just because of the war, right? But then it, it stuck around for like 10 or 12 years after the war, and then it closed oh. down. Good job, Gina Davis. Yeah, it was all Gina Davis and Madonna's uh, work. <laughs> and Rosie O'Donnell, And Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, and that other girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the major leagues, I think you could if they if they wanted to hire you, but I'm not sure. I don't think there. I think it's a it's an Airbud scenario. Yeah, right. I was just gonna say, like the Airbud movies have led me to believe that the rules about what can play what game, like they're pretty fluid. Like no one apparently thought to to set them down ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. So as long as you're capable of playing the game, like you're allowed. And yes. It's fine. Even if you, as a dog, do not go to the school of the team. That you're representing. <laughs> True. Now, I know a few women have thrown batting practice at ma- for major league teams, but I don't know that they've even played in a minor league game. Um, and so I have high hopes for, Mon- for Monet, but I think she may favor basketball. She wants to play for UConn or something, I think. Right. So we'll That's see fine. how that goes. But in the meantime, they're killing it. And there's nothing like being in a bar cheering for 12-year-olds <laughs> on the TV. <laughs> It's pretty great. It's like at 12 years old, she is better at either of those two sports than I ever have been or ever will be. Oh, yeah. She's got that on on me at least. But but then there are all these kids who have so many emotions. Like some some kid on the other team almost hit a kid in the head and then he got a little weepy and then he walked the kid and he like visibly was crying. But then he struck the next kid out. It's a roller coaster of emotions. See, man, this is why child labor laws are... are (laughs) stupid because if you take anything there's nothing that wouldn't be better if it were kids doing it instead of grown-ups like have you watched master chef junior or I, as i like to call it kid kitchen i've not watched kid kitchen <laughs> is way better than actual master chef because i started watching it just because i wanted to see gordon ramsay yell at some kids but he's actually like really sweet and supportive with them mm-hmm. but then there are still kids that are all like they think they're better than you and you can still like root against them now how old are those kids because i've watched chopped teen tournament <laughs> and those kids it's are a, pretty impressive it's a range i think they ran from like 
seven or eight up to like 12 or 13. What food could a seven or eight year old make? Some of them needed like little stools to stand on they so they like, could reach the counter. Do they get like Donald Duck knives so that they don't hurt they can themselves? Make, they can make like cake and and all kinds of complicated stuff. One time they soft boiled an egg without a timer, which I can't do. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> I can overboil an egg. So you can hard boil an egg. I can, but hardest boil an egg without a timer. <laughs> it's basically an egg-shaped rock at the end. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, speaking of rocks, um, yeah, breaking rocks is a thing that people do in prison. Oh, God. Yeah. And this week I read Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison by Piper Kerman. Wait, say that again? Piper Kerman. Is that really her name? Yeah, I got it. I was going to say the name of the character in the TV show, but then I didn't. Okay. I thought it was something else, but you're right. Piper Kerman. I am right. Thanks. You are looking at the book, I presume. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did so, read it. so why this book, Andrew? Um, well, because as most of our listeners probably know, um, Orange is the New Black was adapted into an award-winning Netflix TV series. Okay, and I've seen both seasons of that. Where I'm going to try really hard not to spoil too much from the show. I think, as a rule of thumb, like season one spoilers will be game because if you haven't watched that yet and are still worried about spoilers, like you are what's wrong with <laughs> with talking about media on the internet. <laughs> yeah, and well, and I I would be really interested to dive to not spend all of our time just talking about how it's different from the from no, the book because no, that, i think it raises a lot of issues that the show either can't or or is too busy to do there are know. important there are important similarities between the book and the show we're not i don't we're not going to talk a ton about the show but just just saying if you haven't watched season one or two and you're so worried about like not knowing what happens one it's like it's fine it's still a good show just like go watch it um and Two, two, you yeah, should have watched it by now. Yeah, you should have watched it already. Yeah. Um the shows you've been meaning to watch. <laughs> yeah, that was my that was my gateway. And then um one of my um friends on Twitter said that she had finished it and she recommended it. So, All right. So here we are. Well, so it is a is it it's not a biography, but it's, it's a is, memoir. Okay, it's a memoir. So what do you want to talk about vis a vis Piper if if there's stuff outside the book you want to talk about, or should we just kind of dive into who she is and her context that sets up the book? Yeah, I'll just I'll just set up the book. Great. Um, so uh, Piper was she she was um, 34 when she went to prison, and she okay. was sentenced to um, I think 14 months, which could be cut down a, a 14 or 15 months, which which could be cut down to like 12 or 13 with good behavior. Know, good behavior. Yeah. Um, so she, in like 1988, transferred drug money once for her girlfriend at the time. And okay. her girlfriend was like really deeply involved in this drug ring. And um, like they traveled all over the place and it was kind of fun to have adventures for a while. But then she realized that these people were bad news and that her, you know, her girlfriend, whose name is Nora. I don't I don't know in the book if that's her real name or if that's been changed or, or what the deal is. I assume that it would be pretty trivial to look any of this stuff up. A couple of the articles I was you knew how to Google, yeah. Yeah, a couple of the articles I was reading had one of the some of the authors had tracked down the actual case. And I think Nora is a pseudonym. Um but yeah, with a minimal it's all public record. You can you can find that stuff. Right. And so Piper got out of that game. She moved to San Francisco. Um she she met this guy named Larry. Um and she you know she was out as a as a lesbian, but you know, she, she says that Larry, who she's married to now, was the only guy she ever dated. So, you know, sexuality is fluid. Is uh, flexible. Yeah. <laughs> it um, better be flexible. Otherwise, <laughs> it's going to be pretty boring. <laughs> so, yeah, she did that in 1988. And then in 1998, she was indicted because of the because of the drug money that she had she had transferred. And um there was, you know, there was 10 years between the crime and when she was indicted and the statute of limitations was 12 years. Yeah. Ugh. So that that sucks. Now, is it I don't want to jump too far ahead, but is it true? I read in, in an interview with her that she had like four or six years before she ended up going to prison after she knew she was yeah. probably going to go. Yeah, I, I 
think she went in 2004. So 2003 or 2004. So there was a long <sighs> process where, you know, they were trying to get her sentence down. They were trying to get it so that she wouldn't go to prison at all. But um, something that we'll maybe come back to a little bit later because Piper does use the book as an opportunity to talk about all of, well, some of the stuff that's wrong with the prison system. There's just like so much wrong with it yeah. <laughs> that you can't cover it all in one book. But one of the things that that she is really um, railing against in this book and has continued to rail against since is um, mandatory minimum sentencing, mm-hmm. which um, was enacted in the mid 80s as part of the war on drugs. And it basically says drug offenders, um, they have to serve something. And it's largely determined, I think, by the prosecutor. So the judge has no doesn't really have any leeway to what? say okay this is a 10 year old charge like obviously you're not involved with this anymore just like go do community service and be done and so they like piper pushes in the book that this mandatory minimum sentencing is something that puts a lot of like really minor offenders into prison for for long sentences i mean piper's sentence was only as short as it was because she had a top shelf lawyer and a yeah. lot of these people just have like overworked public defenders. And so they don't, they don't get off as easy. Mm. I guess. I guess, does that minimum stuff not, uh, not apply to all other types of crime? I suppose? I'm not sure. I, she talks about it specifically in the context of drugs and, you know, minor drug offenders, but um, I'm, I'm sure there are other areas where it applies, but it's not something I really researched exhaustively beyond, you know, beyond what Piper is saying in the book about it. Yeah, to play devil's advocate a bit, I can see the logical argument you would make to for why you would put those in place, right? If the idea is to deter people from uh, offending, having a drug offense at all, then it's like, well, yeah, everybody who does it goes to jail. That's it. But then when you take a step back and you realize how expensive that is and whether or not you're actually whether or not you're doing more harm to that person's life by incarcerating them uh than just kind of fining them or whatever you could have done rather than send them to jail for like well and it it also like it makes less of a distinction between like a first time offender who was carrying a joint or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and somebody who's really like dealing and distributing and, and doing worse stuff. Yeah. And it, and it muddies that line. And so everybody gets lumped in. I get, I suppose that's a theme we'll come back to. It's even something that was cropping up as I was researching for this episode of just yeah. the, the type of categorization that our society does for what a felon is. Yeah. And the box that those people get dropped in. Uh, but, but anyway, um, let's go back to Piper. But yeah, I mean, that's basically the setup for the book is she, you know, gets charged for this old crime and she has to do some time about it. And the book is about her experiences in, in prison. And where was she going to prison? Um, She is in Danbury, I think was the name of the prison. It's in Connecticut. Yeah. um, It's in, I think it was the only all women's in the Northeast at that time. Um, I read an article that was some, I think it was last year. They were, there was a huge outcry because they were planning to shut down or they were, they were reverting Danbury to an all male facility mm-hmm. and they were going to ship out like a thousand women to other prisons away from their homes and away from their families. It was announced in the summer of 2013 yep. that FCI Danbury would transition from housing women to housing men with the female inmates transferring mm. out between August and December 2013 and the male inmates arriving in early 2014. And then and I, there's a there's a satellite camp that um, people go... like There was a specific drug rehab program that they would have down at this higher security camp. Like people who cause a lot of trouble would go down to the higher security camp. But um, Danbury itself is like a minimum security prison for mostly for people who, um, who are in there on minor drug charges like Piper is or on like white collar crimes. So financial stuff. Yeah. The, the, the camp that I read about was, was the kind of softy 400 person federal prison camp mm-hmm. that was, the majority white collar people. And I, I don't know that those women would have been affected by the, by the issues last year. Um, but 
they they I think they're building a new facility for at least four hundred women mm-hmm. now, thanks to outcry. But that's insane. I don't know. I've I just just reading about pr- the prison system <laughs> has gotten me really upset. It's really. I mean, it's it's one of those things. I don't know. There's a lot of that stuff going on lately, like with the with all the Ferguson protests and everything. It's like this is some large, like large scale injustice. It's clearly wrong. We clearly need to do something about it. And yet, between I mean, between politicians just being in it to to win elections and not to like do anything after, and also. Um, I don't know. Twitter outrage being as fleeting as it is, it's just yeah. hard to see. It's hard to see how you can get enough outcry that lasts for long enough to like rise above that and actually be productive. Well, which is probably defeatist and and stupid, and part of the reason why these these protests and things don't affect change as as well as they might is because of attitudes like the one that I just laid out. But well, and I wonder. There's I a thought know. experiment to the idea that like. If you can type it in a box and send it into the internet and say that's what I did and like that was what how you contributed to a cause like there's a right lot of, yeah it gives you, know, you the illusion of having of done something, something without actually having done much where 25 or 30 years ago what might you have done maybe you actually would have called your congressman which yeah, is like a phone trope call, at letter. this point mm-hmm. you know act or like actually engaging in in the civil process and I, I just don't know what and if that's changed based on on you know I can type my moral outrage into a phone and then you know go back to watching Orange is the New Black and be like oh yeah I'm a, I'm a good person now I said that thing yeah exactly and I, I'm I'm as guilty of that as anybody I don't know it's it's and that's one of the things that this book does is um it's kind of it's you know Piper is privileged and she is for the most part aware of that privilege, and um, the book you know holds up a mirror to her lifestyle and to the lifestyle of people like her. And um, so I found a quote. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hit me with of quote. Piper's from an, from an interview where this is kind of laying out what she says she wanted to do with the book, and I, I kind of want to get your reaction to it with some specifics from the book itself. Okay. I thought that if I was successful at what I wanted to achieve, then people would come away from the book thinking differently about who was in prison and why they were there and what really happens in there. So who are the people we meet in prison through this book and and what do you learn about why they're there and, and how does the book make you feel about why they're there? Well, one one quick thing to start is that um, according to Piper and according to the book, talking about what you did to get into prison is not okay. Fun. That's fair. like, in, like unless, unless somebody offers it up, you just don't ask because it's, it's considered impolite, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Verboten. Like, yeah. Um, but, um, most of the people she, a lot of the people she runs into are like young, you know, young African-American women mm-hmm. who are in there for drug stuff. And then there, there are, are various other I mean most of the women are in there serving like 10 years is usually like the longest sentence you hear about okay a lot more of them are you know a few months or a few years away from release um so you're really you know you're not dealing with necessarily the hardened murderer type that <laughs> occasionally shows up on the show yeah yeah um it's you know it it is a lot of minor offenders and and what they're doing in there and that you know that aside from the mandatory minimum sentencing thing the other big thing that she harps on is that these prisons you know they have token systems like there's a GED program there's some you know some vocational things that they can learn through their prison jobs um but you know by and large the prison system is not doing a great job of actually rehabilitating people to like come back out into the world are there any um like examples that you can think of or or just how she feels about those those processes like the i think there's like a job there's a job fair on the show right is that in the book i mean it's not really a job fair there are set jobs that prisoners can do and some jobs are 
kind of known for being better than some other jobs. Like if you, if you, um, if you're like a carpenter or you do electrical work, you get a little more like leeway to be, um, around on the prison campus. And occasionally, you know, you even get to leave the grounds, you know, under the, you know, under the watchful eyes of a guard, of course, but you, you know, you get some, some opportunities to escape for like a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cause that's, that's another issue, right? Um, quote i found from some probation journal from the mid 2000s was about that most of the jobs are designed to meet the operational needs of correctional facilities not right. actually yeah. improve the long-term employment needs of prisoners yeah yeah and so you know a lot a lot of the people who are in prison are just kind of marking time and they um you know they get kind of caught up on their on their life inside but it doesn't like the the prison system does not do a lot to like hook them up with employment afterward, and so a lot of the time they're just kind of dumped out into the world. Um, sometimes with family members that don't really want them. Yeah, and the I, I don't know, like for the be- for a lot of these people, the best option might be to go back out onto the streets and start doing the same minor drug related stuff that got them into prison in the first place. And so, yeah, she just, it's a system that imprisons too many people and then kind of makes them, it, it it conditions them to be less capable of interfacing with the, with the outside world. So how does the book, like in the context of the book, how does Piper write about that? Because if it's a memoir about her time in prison, like, is she just talking to you, the reader, just directly about how things are now? Is she talking about what she's heard from women since they've left? Like, how does the book actually convey some of that information? Well, so in the in the book, as in the show, Piper is kind of um, an audience surrogate in okay. a lot of ways. Like, she is she is a you know youngish, pretty white lady, mm-hmm. and you know she is asked frequently throughout the book by other prisoners and by guards, like, "What are you doing here?" Like, people like you don't go to prison. Mm-hmm. Um. And so she's in prison. She's surrounded by these by these other ladies from, you know, different walks of life from, you know, a lot of people who are more serially in prison for this kind of stuff. And again, that means mostly mostly African-Americans. Well, I think the, the rate um, is like African-American women are one three times as likely as as Caucasian women to be imprisoned. I think the last stat that I saw something crazy. Yeah, that sounds that sounds bad enough to be accurate (laughs) um so she is she is the person who relays those you know those people's stories like what those people do the conversations she has with those people to the people who are more like her so like the the 18 to 34 demo who is binge watching netflix shows yeah yeah um, and, and sort of serving as a lens into that world and into like the monotony of it and how rough it is on on the people in prison, how rough it is on their families, how rough it is on on mothers, especially who, it, you know, it separates them from their children and gives them very few chances to interact with them outside of visiting hours or maybe one or two holiday related events. Well, that's one of the things that the show only talks about occasionally. Um, that's one of the criticisms that I've that I've seen in a couple reviews of the show versus the book. Even is that like the most impactful scenes about a parent and their child are pretty ancillary characters, um, usually. But I mean, the line in Orange is the New Black, the show between what who is like a main character and who is an ancillary character is really fluid. Like. In the in the first season of the show, Piper is front and center for a lot of it, but it becomes more and more of an ensemble show later on. And then the second season, um, like the yeah. premiere is the premiere is all Piper and nobody else. And then the second episode is no, she's Piper, not even in it, just everybody. No, and so she she fades into the background a little bit and is like the the stories of the people who are not like her like the people she introduced us to then pick up the torch and do most but, of the story but what i mean stuff. specifically in terms of 
the storyline of parenthood is like that is not parents dealing with children on the outside are not full plots on the show like they are individual scenes that bubble up every once in a while yeah i'd say that's typically true Um, um but the the main criticism that i was seeing of that show is that you know 80 however many women in prison are are either pregnant or have children outside of prison um is far higher than than the ratio portrayed on the show yeah it's a much bigger part of women's lives on a day-to-day basis yeah the the show has to you know it, it has a couple of characters outside of the prison who it tracks but by and large it takes place within the prison and it's it's very character driven and so you have to spend a lot of time with those characters like bouncing them off each other to make the drama the show wants no that's fair Um, i've read i've read of the show it i've read it described as a heightened reality which i think is a good a good Mm -hmm. term for it because there i mean many of the main characters on the show are taken directly from the book. You know, they're given, they're given different names sometimes. Um, often they're like composite characters or, or whatever. Yes. But it, it takes characters from the book and just amps, amps them up like a million times. <laughs> like in, in the book, Piper has a very supportive family. Uh, in the show, she has a waspy family who who doesn't really relate to her and can't stand seeing her in prison in the book. Her, her boyfriend, Larry is her rock and like stands by her the entire time and suffers the entire sentence with her. And in the show, they start having relationship troubles like pretty much instantly. Well, and I Um, I could see how some of those relationships would actually maybe stay the same if it were a two and a half hour film adaptation. Right? Like if you didn't need to create, 12 episodes of conflict a season between characters you could have a minor subplot that is just her dealing with her heartbroken but supportive family you know yeah maybe i mean um, it, it would be a very different, different no it would, it would be here's, very different here's the and, thing about the the book is that it's not i mean it's very much a collection of different vignettes and and, and reading it and i don't i don't want to um disrespect Piper or her writing at all because I think it, you know, it's very clear and it gets her points across very well, but you can kind of tell by reading it that it's not, it's not being written by a writer. It's being written by somebody who had some interesting experiences and wanted to tell the world about them. And so there are, there are threads that carry through the entire book, but you know, the chronology is kind of loose and it's not telling one big overarching story so much as it is telling a bunch of smaller stories um, that all take place against the same backdrop. No, that's fair. And so um, she's like when you're reading the individual chapters of things, like sometimes she'll reiterate information that she already gave you earlier. And so it gives the impression that these things were written separately. And then maybe an editor helped her organize them and, and put them all together in a way that, flowed more or less but um yeah no I, I was saying, so what the what the show has to do is take all those characters in that entire setting and give it a through line no no what i was saying earlier is that it's definitely a mix of what piper was doing with the book and what the creator of the show genji cohen was kind of using piper as a as i think the quote is as a trojan horse to get to all of these other characters that wouldn't otherwise get their own show you know and i mean that's what that's what the book does too it's just less plot driven and less um conflict driven yes yes of course um because i mean in the book nobody gets shivved like she mostly gets along with everybody to the point where it kind of feels a little self-congratulatory like she was able to get along with all these different people and all these different camps and and um like she gets along with the old Russian gangster lady and she gets along with her her African American bunkie and like all of her all the people who she works with. And you know, I I I'm sure she did. Like I'm a hundred percent sure that she did, because it sounds like you kind of have to make friends in that setting to survive. Well then I can see her coming but, out of that setting and going, Well, and now I need to advocate for these people. Yeah, because definitely. they're not the terrible ones. That. The system mm-hmm. is terrible. Um, 
And I think every I I want to say that you know if you set pretty much anybody down and ask them about the prison system, they would have some dim knowledge about how crappy it was and how it was far from perfect. But this this really adds a layer of specificity. Can you can you it. speak to that at all? Is there any like big surprises or facts or anything that were in the book that or scenarios even that kind of blew your your mind? Well, having I mean, having watched the show, I had already been exposed to a lot of a lot of what was going on. So like but between that and um and crap, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so the show prepared um, you for for some of the realities of it yeah 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 but between that and and the real lack of specificity from anybody in the book about like what they had done to get in okay that you know there are there are individual characters you learn about but yeah it's mostly the same kind of low-level drug stuff low-level financial stuff i guess one of the things that surprised me and it and it happened in the show too um was there was a point toward the end of piper sentence in the book where um, she was going to be called upon to testify about her involvement in this drug ring, and of oh, course, yeah. you know she did. She didn't even know the person who she was going to be testifying about, and she told her lawyer this. But like the system is indifferent, and so it doesn't even care. And so she has moved from Danbury to a facility in Chicago for a while, and that is that facility is like less. Like we're a big dysfunctional family prison, and more like this is a box that we are keeping you in prison. Oh, th- yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And like the food is even worse, and the and the guards are even worse. And like you know, the the end date of her sentence is approaching really rapidly, and she just doesn't even have a sense of whether she's going to be let go or whether people are even aware that the end of her sentence is approaching. And so it comes, you know, it comes as a surprise to her at the end when they tell her to pack up her stuff and get out Hmm. because like the prisoners are just told so little. And, you know, the guards, of course, have all the power over everything. Yeah. Well, and I, it happens on the show as well. And I read it in an interview with a former inmate kind of talking about the show the idea that you are, whenever you get singled out, it could be potentially very dangerous. And obviously yeah. that's the kind of the road that Piper's walking, right? Um, but even something as, as simple as like, I got extra crackers today because my family gave me extra money is a, makes you a target by people who don't have crackers. Yeah, and she's and she's aware of, you know, her her she's got a very supportive, you know, network of people outside the prison. And she had a website that was that's still up actually called the Pipe Bomb that was basically run by her by Larry and her family to keep her friends and everybody updated. And I think Larry wrote a column in the New York Times for the Modern Love mm-hmm. column that I think introduced this story to a lot of people cuz that was that was actually written while Piper was in prison and I don't I don't know if you ran across that but um so she gets she gets books, she gets a subscription to the New Yorker at one point and somebody else in the prison who's getting a subscription to the New Yorker kind of is upset with her about it because you know we we already get this magazine like we can just pass it around it seems wasteful to get to. Oh, interesting. And she'll get all these copies of books. And I was reading some entries on the pipe bomb and it said that she had gotten like three copies of Middlesex. Oh, no. <laughs> which we we read for the show like way back in the day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she's she's just aware of she's aware of the difference between her situation and the situation of a lot of the other prisoners. And I think that's it, it's not. I think that's a lot of why she wanted to write the book is because these women don't have voices. They don't have a platform. Mm -hmm. And I think she discovered after she got out that, you know, thanks to Larry and, and thanks to her own, her own like middle-classness and her own innate privilege. Like she, she would be able to get a book out about this. Yeah. People would be interested in a way that like some, african-american lady who got arrested for dealing pot and would not yeah well that's an interesting delineation to make right because it's not like she wrote the book while she was in prison 
No, it's I think she was all taking hindsight, notes and stuff, right? But but yeah, she I don't I don't think that she had planned to write a book all along, but she was keeping track of stuff that happened. Do you get a sense? Do you kind of feel that that looking back in anger part of it? That kind of like I need to write a book about this so that people know versus it being just a thing that was happening to her that she decided to record. It's definitely it's definitely to get the word out to other people just about the she is not so upset about her own circumstance. I mean, she definitely is because she thinks that the reason why she's in prison is dumb. And like, yeah, she broke the law. She did something stupid. But the system should be able to tell the difference between somebody who did it a long time ago and clearly is not doing it anymore. And somebody who is like actively involved. There's somebody who is deeper in it, like her ex. Yeah. Like the system as it is, does not really make a, make a distinction between people like Piper and people like Nora. Now is Nora factor into this book? How heavily does she factor into the actual content in the book? She's at the beginning when um, Piper is telling, you know, why she got into the situation in the first place. And then they actually end up in a cell together. Oh God in Chicago while they're while they're awaiting trial and Piper is upset because clearly Nora fingered her yeah. in this in this thing. Uh, that's bad choice. Yeah, it's fine. You're fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um Nora ratted her out and that's the only reason why she's there. But um I don't know. They they achieve like a rough stalemate in prison just because they have to. It's not like in the show, that's that's one of the things that gets dramatically heightened is Piper and her old flame like start hanging out again, and and Piper can't move past her, and blah blah blah. Um, I fi- I find that to be one of the more irritating things about the show because <laughs> um, Nora, the Nora character's name is Alex in the show, and yeah. like Piper without Alex in the show is actually interesting and funny. Yes, and Piper pining over Alex is like selfish and and hard to relate to i think well because you don't i you don't really understand why you would keep going back to that well like you've been burned a hundred times and i know that love is blind and irrational and whatever but that's i i i buy your first half of that that argument she just she becomes pretty one note for me when yeah when that's when the scenes are about her and alex on the show they just kind of spin in circles. Whereas mm-hmm. like you can find ways to talk about someone being unable to move on in a way that, that stays fresh. But Piper is pretty far more interesting when she's dealing with a character she had already made an assumption about. Yeah. And then something else happens. And um, I mean, to just your point, the... sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say the relationship stuff on that show is by far my least favorite yeah. part of it. Yeah. Like the, the stuff with, show piper and show larry is just some of the most boring crap and then they like break up and we keep following larry around for no reason yeah man and why is larry still on the show well and why am i spending 15 minutes with stupid larry doing stupid (laughs) crap i think one of my favorite parts of every episode and we're getting a little far afield from the book but (laughs) it's fine in the opening lighten it up a little bit in the opening credits uh they're playing that regina specter song Mm-hmm. And they showed Jason Biggs's name with like a really dramatic shot of the prison tower <laughs> that's like wildly different from everything else in the credit sequence. And it just feels real sinister. Like we hired the American Pie guy and he's evil because he's Jason <laughs> Biggs. He's only evil in that he takes screen time away from much more interesting <laughs> characters. <laughs> But it, there's just like a moment in the song and it feels very pointed. I'm like, why are we, I mean, you hired him. Why are you being mean to him like that? Seems odd. Well, just the nature of TV. Like, I already know that Jason Biggs is signed on as a series regular again for season three. So I'm just yep. like, I'm I'm bracing myself for another season of Larry diversions. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite things about the show are the not random but you kind of alluded to this earlier but the acts of kindness between women on the show like scenes that have a little bit of conflict but not like capital c conflict and then it's really just about people helping each other get through the day or get through life are there 
how does that do, does she tell those types of stories in the book or is she yeah yeah definitely like there there are specific in, instances where um she get she'll get close to specific characters like the um the character red in the show who's played by kate mulgrew mm-hmm. is uh named pop in the book okay and um after and and this is something that happened in both the show and the book is that piper initially insults her cooking not knowing that she is the head of the kitchen terrible terrible (laughs) terrible but after that um she and pop get kind of close and like pop gives her a pair of pajamas that they used to sell at commissary but they don't anymore and so the pairs in circulation have become like really highly sought after Mm -hmm. um it talks a lot about how the different the prisoners from especially the prisoners from you know different ethnic groups who have really distinctive um cuisines that they like to make like the hoops that they'll jump through and the improvisations that they'll make to like microwave all this different stuff into existence (laughs) like piper piper's signature food becomes like microwave cheesecake oh no um so yeah, it talks a lot about those moments of closeness. Like, um, you know, Piper has a birthday. She has her 35th birthday in prison. And, you know, there are a lot of birthday rituals that happen. Like all the prisoners sneak into your bunk and they decorate it. And the guards kind of look the other way as long as you take all the decorations down yeah. by the next day. Um, and then she talks a lot about the need to balance your prison life with the life that you're supposed to go back to. And I think this is something, this is another thing that um that people you know people without supportive networks to go back to have more trouble with this so like piper has frequent visits she has she gets mail she gets books she has stuff to remind her that once she gets done with this there is something out there for her yeah yeah and she finds herself like having to walk this line between um you know playing playing prison politics basically and being involved in stuff that's happening with prison, but also um, keeping like a sense of forward motion and knowing in the back of her mind that this is terrible and she can't wait to get out. Well, I don't know. Just just like just trying to pass the time and make it go by as quickly as possible. That, that's the kind of stuff that that um, holds the book together, I guess. Well, that's the it's the ultimate form of kind of compartmentalizing your life, except it's being compartmentalized for you right Mm -hmm. that in the way that like you might not want to worry about all your office politics at home and you want to be able to kind of like forget about that when you're not there or whatever it is but this is this is your life like you have to deal with it because you spend all you know 24 hours of every day in it um and i i can imagine it would be really really easy to to lose yourself in that especially if you have any success at getting by right you kind of see that on the show like characters who kind of find an identity in that world as yeah half coping mechanism half just having purpose within those walls yeah i mean and that that stuff has been part of prison in popular culture for a long time Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. shawshank redemption really hits on that hits that note pretty hard how difficult it can be for people who people whose worlds were in prison and they knew how to get by and then on on the outside they're they're purposeless and and your whole day isn't regimented anymore and what what do you do with that freedom yeah um okay two things because we're running low on time let me just i'm gonna check my notes real quick while you're asking and make sure that I've talked about it. So the show has a mix of sex and violence that I hear are not really indicative of what actually happens or happened at Danbury. No. What is the sexiest thing in the book? And what's the most violent thing in the book? The sexiest thing in the book? Does she talk Um, about sex at all? Because that's a it's huge part of the to, show. And it's clearly not, a, like, it's frowned. It, it's not just frowned upon. It's clearly not allowed. Yeah. But you hear about sex mostly through gossip. Okay. And um, some people, like, clearly have girlfriends. 
Um, and then, and she talks about the concept of being quote unquote gay for the stay. Okay, fair enough. Which means you do what you need to do to get sexual gratification while you're in there, and yeah. then you go back to your regular life. <laughs> Um, when I imagine the the guards on the show are looking the other way or doing something else all the time, so I imagine in the real world, with any sort of competent guard uh, population, it would be pretty hard to like sneak away, and for very long. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you you have to be dumb to get caught <laughs> doing stuff you're not allowed to. It sounds yeah. like like um. You know, of course, they they do inspections and all that stuff, and they do always have guards on duty, and they have um, three counts a day when you're just supposed to be in your bunk, and they they are just accounting for your whereabouts. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, like, I'm trying to think if there are any like you know people talk about um, manual stimulation a lot. Okay, that's a cool word for it. Just about, just about like the <laughs> the the things that you make to do that in prison. Oh, gross! And it's mostly like toothbrushes with stuff wrapped no. around them. Um, I don't know why that grosses me out. Maybe it's just because it's a toothbrush. I don't know. There's also there's um there's one character in the book who is actually on the show and and has the same name and a lot of the same characteristics. Her name is Big Boo Clemens. Oh yeah, Big Boo. And she's um, she's a three hundred pound white lady with great skin who gets all the tail she wants, <laughs> and she's good at she's good at busting rhymes. I like Big Boo a lot. Does she have a dog in the book? No, not in okay. the book. There are ladies who have dogs, and Piper kind of stays away from them because they seem a little unbalanced. <laughs> is it does she, is that specifically part of some sort of like puppies for parole or yes, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. What is the is there anything violent in the book? Um cuz there's some violence on the show. It's very yeah, heightened like nobody, obviously. Nobody's getting shiv with a sharpened toothbrush yeah. in the book. Um Are there fi- do, do does she talk about like actual fighting or conf- like kind of there heavy conflict? Really any any fights like there there are there a lot of the conflict is kind of emotional like especially when she talks about the sexism that she encounters from some of the guards like there's one particular guard who was her boss for a while while she was working in the electrical Uh division where she had like they were running some wires through something and so you have to basically grease the wires up and then run this big thick cable you know through a hole yep i I think i think you can guess where that story goes yeah are they male guards or are they all female guards um, mostly male. Mostly male. Okay. Yeah, and same for um, for people higher up, like the counselors and um, and and everything. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to, the first warden. I mean, the warden is a major character on the show, but they, wardens don't really factor into the book much. Um, the first warden is a female, and she's kind of not around. Mm-hmm. I, I hate saying female. Um, she's a woman, and she's not around. <laughs> Well, because it just sounds like you're referring to an alien race. <laughs> yes, Female you're right. Characters. It does. Don't, don't say so, that again. Yeah. I'm trying to break myself of that habit. So. Okay. Um, and then the second one, who we don't hardly hear anything about, is from a maximum security prison, and and the inmates who have been around for a while say that the ones who come from higher security prisons usually are better, and they they know what they're doing, and they're more committed to to their jobs and everything so and does the show tackle any sort of the larger not the show the book excuse me because it seems to be about these women's stories but does it kind of take any pot shots at or how does it take pot shots at the larger systemic issues or or corruption or anything like that does it concern itself with that um, the systemic stuff is mostly talked about in the, you know, the mandatory minimum sentencing thing, like we already talked about, uh-huh. and um, and the lack of credible um, rehabilitation programs, and like, I don't know, the the equivalent of a career development center at a college or something. Like, there's no, there's nothing in a prison that is seriously doing that job. Okay, like they aren't even handing out papers with classified ads or, or anything and i think papers like that you your um p 
people on the outside were not allowed to send you newspapers. They could send you magazines, but you couldn't get newspapers for whatever reason. Hmm. I'm sure. I mean, we it it makes sense. Just it makes sense in my in my gut. We don't have to talk about why you wouldn't want prisoners to have newspapers. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's mo- that's most of the systemic stuff, and like on an on an individual level, it's just a lot of the time these guards and these counselors are um, are just coming in and they're going to work their 20 years or whatever and they're going to get their pension and they're going to cash out and that is pretty much all that they're there for. Like she talks about how um, there's a guard at one point who quits, which is just not done. Hmm. Like guards just don't quit. They stay and they get their pension and they leave then. Um, so nobody really seems committed to watching over these women yeah, I guess, and like trying to look out for them and actually help them learn something from what they did. I mean, it is very much just throwing people in a box and forgetting about them. Well, and in a you, lot of ways. And if you think about if that's happening for what are largely minimum security detainees uh, and people who aren't serving thirty or forty years for far more severe crimes, like. Who are the people working in those facilities and and what kind of work are they getting done? And they're obviously working, some of them are working in far more dangerous facilities, but what kind of, we call it rehabilitation, like what what is it? What is happening there? Yeah, and I think I think you get a better glimpse of that in the, at, toward the end of the book when she's in the Chicago facility, which is which is so much like bigger and more faceless and more difficult to get along in that she gets kind of homesick for Danbury. Mm. She kind of just wants to go back yeah. there and wait out the rest of her sentence instead of staying in this cell with no stimulation and barely edible food. And yeah, it just, it just sounds real bad all the way around. So great. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> like, if you, if you have seen the show, there is, you know, there's definitely value in reading the book because it helps to separate the fact from the fiction a little bit better. Okay, good. Good, good, good. I think if if you watch the show and you think, you know, this is what it's like, it's just a soap opera where everybody's having sex all the time. Um, so a soap not, opera. <laughs> like, uh, and again, I don't want to downplay what the show does because I think it does do a good job of introducing characters to an audience that would not, like... Mm-hmm. encounter those characters otherwise mm-hmm. a lot of characters uh you know a lot of women and a lot of minorities that that otherwise don't get screen time on, on a lot of mainstream television networks yeah yeah and um and so so it is you know it, it is raising awareness in its own way and it is getting stuff out there and of course i i think it i mean it it is over the top and it was more over the top in season two than it was in yes. season one, you know, in a way that makes me a little skittish about where it's going to go <laughs> in season three, because my, un- my understanding is that weeds, um, which was Genji Cohen's other show got like way off the rails. Insane. I kind of dipped long- in and the out longer. It went, I dipped yeah. in and out on weeds. Laura was watching it. She seemed to like all of it, but I, I totally could see where that criticism would come from. Even just with a couple episodes that i saw yeah so. so i mean it's it's a really solid show i mean talking about how it uses netflix as a medium is just a whole other whole other podcast i think like i, I talked at the beginning about you know how the premiere of season two is all piper and the the second episode is no piper and you could i don't think you could do that with a show that ran week to week i think you can only do that and not make people upset with a show where you know that immediately when episode one ends, people are going to fire up episode two. Yeah. The type of storytelling that you're able to do in that format is, is pretty fascinating. Um, You don't have to have those same end of episode beats every week. You don't have to structure your storytelling in exactly the same way every week or. Yeah. Like every episode needs to tell some kind of self-contained story. And usually it does that by focusing on one or two characters. Yeah. Um, while also moving the wider plot forward, but yeah, it, it's less constrained even than, you know, serialized cable shows like your Sopranos is or breaking bads. Yeah. But, um, to go back to the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, 
you get you get a better sense of what's what's real and what isn't like what it's really like to be in prison and it's not it is similar to the show in some ways and just really dramatically different in a lot of other ways yeah i think the show gets the broad strokes right but has to well has to be a show has to pump it up yeah to to be a satisfying tv i read a a compliment of it that was like it's like oz except it did the one thing oz never did which was make me laugh yeah yeah (laughs) it's really i mean it's a really darkly funny show a lot of the time um things that are not darkly funny i i did one stat that i found andrew about our country's prison population which i just want to leave you with to bum us all out yeah let's let's end on a a high note we are five percent the united states is five percent of the world's population but the stat I saw said that we have 25% of the world's prison population. Yay. Yay. Uh, if you'd, there are a couple places you can look up some of the issues we were talking about vis-a-vis the book. There's like the Women's Prison Association. There's the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, there is, I'm glad you brought up the mandatory minimums thing, Andrew. There's the Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Um and the nation inside and i know there's also like there's organizations for architects that think prison design is terrible and dehumanizes people um there's all sorts of things that you can look into if if you are moved by these issues and and want to do something about it so yeah and if you actually buy the book i downloaded the kindle version which I don't know if it's been updated since it was originally released. I assume that it has, but it has a huge list of organizations and other resources that you can use if you want to find out more about this stuff. And there's a, there's uh, a book yeah. that uh, I don't know when and if we'll get to it on the show, but if someone who listens has has read it and has thoughts on it, I'd love to hear about a book called The New Jim Crow, which is by uh, Michelle Alexander. It's a pretty recent, past two years, I think, book about mass incarceration. Yeah. And kind of what might be happening in America and based on its prison policies. So if anybody has read yeah. it and has thoughts on it, please let us know. Yeah, if I wanted to follow this book up with anything, you know, now that now that someone like me has served as the Trojan horse to get me in, now I want to read books from the perspective of people who are traditionally imprisoned. You yes. Know, mm-hmm. More more African Americans, more more women, just more disadvantaged people. And just like find, finding out more of what they think about it and what they think the solutions are and, and that kind of thing. I want to read like a like a journal, like a like day by day what is like inside experience. Yeah. Um, because I, I would be interested to know what that is and, and to see a, to see a person's experience evolve over time. Yeah. And that might better convey like the sense of monotony. even. Oh, yeah. Piper Piper often describes. Yeah. So if you have any recommendations for that or, or other thoughts on, on this book or how you felt about season two of Orange is the New Black. Or or if you just want to hate on Larry some because I'm always up for that. <laughs> you can uh, send that into our email, uh, which is overduepod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet those reactions to us at twitter.com slash overduepod. Or send us links to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overduepod, which uh, Jason sent us a whole host of links that I worked my way through uh, for the for this episode, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Um, we also have a website up at overduepodcast.com. Um, up there we have Amazon links to all the books that we have read and the ones that we're going to read. If you want to support the show, the best way to do it is, um, well, the two best ways to do it. One, tell everybody about it. <laughs> And two, <laughs> click those Amazon links, buy those books. We get a little cut of that, which helps defray our hosting costs and um, just keep us in, in books in general. Yeah, pretty much. Um, up there, we also have links to our RSS feed and our iTunes page. If you want to subscribe uh, through either of those methods, that would be awesome. If you subscribe through iTunes, uh, leave us a rating or a review. We got another review this week. Five stars, so keep, keep them coming. Um, and also um, something I was thinking about is if we need to be on some kind of service that we are not on, like SoundCloud or something, that would uh, make it easier for you to access the show, do emails about it, and I, I can get that set up um, if it would be advantageous. And I may end up doing that for some services anyway, but um, I, I am assuming that a lot of podcast searching is still iTunes-centric, and probably it isn't that way. So <laughs> Yeah, let us know where we should be. 
Yeah. Um, folks, you can also tweet about or, or, or share the word about the show uh, on your social media of choice. I want to thank, in addition to Jason, uh, Jonathan, Kara, Terry, Amber, and Robert, who all in one way or another uh, talked about us uh, on social media, which helps other people uh, find the show. Some of it's just, you know, disagreeing with us about stuff on the podcast or it's which is totally fine which is totally <laughs> fine we appreciate it um or it's you know saying how excited you are for the new episode which makes our days better um and hopefully we make your days better with our episodes about bummer prison life Yay. so <laughs> craig what are you going to read to make our lives better next week i don't know check it out on the <laughs> website <laughs> All right. Well, in two weeks, I'm going to read This Is How You Lose Her by Juno Diaz. Oh, nice. Not Juno, yeah. Great. Okay, am I, am I yeah. pronouncing his name yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So who knows what Craig's going to read, but that's what I'm doing. Now. Awesome. I look forward yeah. to it. Okay, cool. Um, until next Monday, everybody, try to be happy. <laughs>